All right. Well, last week we started Revelation, right? Yes. And uh, we talked about a, a number of things we, to kind of give you... Hello? Oh, no. There we go. <laughs> Angle that a little bit, if you would. And we'll see if that makes a difference. Uh, first of all was this kind of the big idea of these first three verses, all right, which was this idea that those first three verses contain the, the thought that Jesus has revealed uh, to his servant John, who we said was more than likely the um, Apostle John, uh, this vision for the end of times and how he is going to uh, sort of bring about the end of human history. And uh, that in both reading it and hearing it, there is a blessing involved to anyone who does that, okay? And so there were several takeaways from that. Still isn't working. Mark? Uh, first one is that we have hope. See, people don't generally think of the book of Revelation as a book of hope right? That's why we need to read it, because it is a book of hope. Uh, and it has this, there's the hope because God has spoken and is continuing to speak, and he has a plan for everything. And the plan centers on Jesus, right? Okay. There's also, it also contains this prophetic vision that has, um, begun to be fulfilled, but actually awaits a final fulfillment. Um, and this actually fits perfectly with vineyard theology, because we talk often about the already and the not yet, and it refers to this idea that, you know, the, the end of times, or the, the, the kingdom of God really, began when Jesus came, right? And it continues on until he comes again. And so that interim period is where we experience the already of the kingdom, but the not yet of the kingdom, because it's not fully come. It's come in part. And so we believe that, you know, we can pray for healing and we can pray for various things and that we interact with God, um, but it's not always perfect, right? Because it's not completely here yet. There are still battles that are going on, right? And then finally... This blessing uh, is there, but it's there for those who, first of all, listen to it, and then secondly, and more importantly, obey it, right? It's not just enough to hear it. You've got to do something about it. So that was really verses one through three. So today we're going to jump into the next five verses, uh, verses four through eight of Revelation. So here we go. John to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. 
Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. All right. So, here we go. Very good. Got the mind meld thing going on here now. (laughs) All right. So, first of all, he's talking to these seven churches that are addressed right off the bat. But interestingly, why seven? Because there were more than seven churches. We know that from other documents. There were at least ten churches that had been established in the Roman province of Asia uh, by the time that John wrote this, if we're thinking about the later date of around 95. Okay, Uh, So why just the seven of them? Why not all of them? Well, as you might, if you've read Revelation before, if you've you know at least studied other things about the book of Revelation, you know that numbers carry a huge significance throughout the book. And that the number seven biblically always represents completeness or fullness, right? So the conclusion that is drawn from this is that, you know, John, first of all, and we have to remember this, has written to seven important and strategic historical churches. And those seven can represent all of the other churches in Asia and can represent the universal church as a whole. Okay, So that's generally the explanation as to why it's these seven. And... um, If I remember correctly, I think if you look on the map, they're written to in sort of a geographic order. So you can actually follow the trail that the letter would have taken if you look where they're laid out in in an older map. Okay. So then we have grace and peace to you. And this was this is a fairly standard greeting in uh, in many of the letters we find in Scripture. The term grace is a theological modification of a Greek term for greetings that was used in in many ancient Greek letters. And peace really is drawing upon this this Hebrew concept of shalom. And shalom goes much further than just this idea of peace as we know it, okay? Shalom, uh, there's a connotation of just general well-being and so forth. So, I mean, it's a much broader concept, than just peace, meaning everything is kind of quiet and calm. And so, and again, you know, at first glance, Revelation doesn't seem to really be a book that exudes grace and peace, right? Once you get into some of the imagery and and so forth further in. But they're fitting words for those who will actually receive the message of the book. And... uh, Followers of Jesus kind of hearing this greeting that reflects God's unconditional favor and well-being, you know, that, that is brought to this. So, and then we come to the statement from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ. Now, the interesting thing about the first part of this, the from him who is and who was and who is to come, 
is that if you look up uh, Greek scholars who read this, this is supposedly atrocious Greek. From a, um, from a language construction standpoint, it's really, really bad Greek. But it's really, really good theology. Okay? Um, if you were to say this another way, it would be the being and the was and the coming is another way to interpret this. All right? What it's saying is that God is eternal and unchangeable. And this was important because those early Christians faced what seemed to them to be a very uncertain future with the persecution that they were undergoing. And they had to kind of keep that idea before them of this absolute certainty of God's eternal rule. Right? You know, that's what gave them the hope that's in this book. You know, was this idea that this is all temporary, this is eternal, and this is what's important. Important. And so it reminded them that God's not at the mercy of any environment. God's not defined by any kind of an external condition. And all things exist in terms of his inerrant word. And so these people were threatened, they were opposed, they were persecuted by those who were in power. But they were able to rejoice because they had this knowledge of this eternal God who is to come and who is coming continually in judgment of their adversaries. Now, this, this particular verse or phrase also contains one of uh, the first of, of John's mysteries that he talks about in this book, and it's this idea of the seven spirits. Now, does John mean that this is the one Holy Spirit in his essential nature, sort of along the same lines as, he, as these seven churches sort of rever, refer to a universal church as a whole? So does it mean that? Or does he mean that the Spirit is equally present in each of the seven churches? Or does it, does it mean something about the sevenfold gifts of the Spirit, which Isaiah talks about? We can't really know for sure. You know? and, and this is where there are some aspects of this book, just as there are aspects in other parts of Scripture, we take on faith. We just don't really know exactly what's meant here. But the expression most likely refers to this idea of the sevenfold Holy Spirit. Now, how do we get there? How do we get to that, come to that conclusion? Well, I think there's a number of ways you do that. First of all, it immediately said that the triune God was the source of grace and peace. So that's already sort of been stated. You have other parallels in the book of Revelation. And I'm not going to read through all of them, but if you were to look at Revelation 3, 1, 4, 5, and 5, 6. So chapter 3, verse 1, chapter 4, verse 5, and chapter 5, verse 6. In each case, it refers to the seven spirits of God. All right. So there's a parallel for that in other parts of the book. You have a background of Zechariah, which is also important other places in Revelation, uh, where God's work is accomplished by his spirit. And then finally, there's the likelihood that if John really meant, because some people see this and they think, okay, those are angels. 
because it later on talks about the seven angels that are part of the seven churches. Well, the general idea is that if John meant to say angels, that's what he would have said. He wouldn't have said seven spirits. He would have written angels, okay, because that would be consistent with the way he wrote in other parts of the book. So once again, this idea of seven sort of emphasizes the full and complete work of God's spirit. Um, as well as it does sort of at least indicate there's a connection with the seven churches. All right. And then sort of an interesting aside, um, the word throne appears 46 times in the book of Revelation. The next closest um, New Testament book that in terms of the mentions of throne is the book of Mark where it's used five times. <laughs> Okay, so there is this, you know, this large use of this word. And so it really seems to emphasize this idea of God's rule and the idea that Jesus is Lord of history. So this, this use of the word throne over and over repeatedly. Um, okay, Mark, next. Then we have Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. So Jesus is identified three different ways here. Right. First of all, he's identified as the faithful witness. Now, I think the general sense of this would be that he lived as a faithful witness to the to the Father and to his Father's plan, uh, attesting to what's true, exposed that which was not. And so, because of that, he really is the ultimate example for us as believers. And then, of course, the supreme expression of his faithfulness was his death on the cross. Now, however, there's a scholar that I think has brought up an interesting point. And the interesting point is that the term witness in Greek actually means martyr. All right? And what's happened is that over time, that word has acquired some connotations that are actually foreign to what it meant originally. And he says in the Bible, the witness is one who works to enforce the law and assist in its execution, even to the enforcement of the death penalty. That's what the word originally meant. Martyr has now come to mean the exact reverse. That is, one who is executed rather than an executioner one who is persecuted rather than one who is central to prosecution. So in his opinion, there's a serious misreading of scripture that's going on here because we don't read that word correctly. And so he believes that the significance of Jesus as the faithful and true witness is that he not only witnesses against those who are at war with God, but he also executes them. Jesus Christ therefore witnesses against every man and nation that establishes its life on any other premise than the sovereign and triune God and his infallible and absolute law. And I thought that was a really interesting way to think about that. It doesn't necessarily negate the other meaning, but the fact that there may be more to that than what originally appears, I just found interesting. 
Second, and the second point is really pretty clear, is that he says he's the firstborn from the dead, which means that his resurrection guarantees our resurrection, right? You know, he's now the, the sovereign Lord over everything, including death. He was the first to do it, and now we are all able to do it as well. And third, he now reigns as exalted Lord over all earthly rulers and kingdoms. And this is a crucial point if you're thinking about it from the perspective of the, the folks that he was writing to. Because this is exactly the reason all the persecution was going on by the Romans to the Christians. You see, Jesus, by the gospel, has asserted his absolute sovereignty and dominion over the rulers of everything, all rulers over the earth. Jesus is above. And so the early believers had a choice. They could either submit to the government or they could submit to the law or the gospel, essentially, of what Jesus says, which means accepting his non-negotiable terms of surrender. And so this was such an audacious and uncompromising position and was an affront to the dignity of any self-respecting humanist. Much more so to the rulers who were accustomed to thinking of themselves as gods walking on earth. And we talked about that last week, how the Caesars took various titles such as Lord and God and so forth. And so, you know, if you're thinking like the Romans, they're like, well, you know, maybe Jesus could be allowed a place in the pantheon along with the other gods. That was okay. But for his followers to proclaim him as Lord of all, whose law is binding all men, including rulers, whose statutes call into judgment the legislation and the decrees of other nations? That's just too much. I mean, from a Roman perspective, that's inexcusable. And we can't, can't have that. So it would have been a lot easier on these early Christians, of course, if they had maybe preached, a, you know, sort of a popular retreatist doctrine that we hear sometimes today that, Jesus is Lord of the heart. And he's concerned with the spiritual, which means not earthly, conquests. But he's not the least bit interested in political questions, that he's content to be the Lord of the spirit realm. While Caesar is Lord of everything else, which really reads everything else that matters. Now see, if they'd taken that approach, they wouldn't have been a threat. No one would have really paid much attention to it. But the church in those days wasn't aware that there was some other way to look at this. They taught what the Bible said about the doctrine of Christ's lordship, which means that he's lord of everything. And so that's what guaranteed that they were going to be persecuted, tortured, 
and put to death at the hands of the Roman state. But it also guaranteed their ultimate victory. Because Jesus is universal Lord, then any opposition to his rule is doomed to failure. It'll be crushed. And again, kind of building on a point from last week, that is why ultimately it does not matter who any of the world leaders are, including the President of the United States. Because this plan focuses on Jesus, right? To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. Now this is uh, essentially a doxology, which is a churchy word that means it's, a, it's sort of a formula of praise to God. And we find these in various places in scripture. But it's just like something that more than likely would have been said during the church service, just a way to uh, kind of express praise to God, all right? Uh, and it really calls for a response of worship. His ongoing love was demonstrated supremely at the cross. But that sacrificial work also forms us into a kingdom of priests that, that must be prepared to serve him. There is not the slightest hint anywhere in this of there being some division between regular believers and the special class of priests. That was Old Testament. That was temple service. Now we're talking new covenant. No distinction. All believers are priests. We're kings and priests now with the full privilege um, coming later. Again, that's where we are now, but there's a not yet part when we will fully realize everything that that means, what that status uh, really means. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. Now this, this really is a place where it emphasized that if you want to understand the book of Revelation, you have got to read the Old Testament. So if you've just spent your whole time reading, thinking, eh, I don't really need the Old Testament, that's old. <laughs> the New Testament, that's where action is because that's where Jesus is and everything else. Well, you're never going to understand what, what John is saying in Revelation unless you understand what's in the Old Testament. Because John references it over and over and over again. And it's what brings sort of that completeness to the whole book that ties everything together so beautifully. And so what he's doing here is he's kind of combining two thoughts or two parts of scripture. The first one being uh, in the book of Daniel 7.13 and then in Zechariah 12.10-12 and he's combining those things to announce the second coming of Jesus. And so you find in Scripture, first of all, that clouds tend to be a very common Old Testament symbol for God and for God's presence, right? You see that a fair amount. 
And so it's in Daniel 7.13, which is where the Messiah is described like a son of man. And I remember for so long, this would trip me up. I'm just like, what in the heck is a son of man? It was sort of like, well, I, you know, this should be obvious, but it wasn't. And finally, I was able to figure out, or with some help, that really all it's saying is that he was a human being. That's what son of man means, right? And so he comes, again in Daniel, he comes with the clouds of heaven and is given all power and authority. That's what it says in Daniel. Okay, so that's the first part of this. But then, as is predicted in Ze the, the passage in Zechariah, his glorious return results in sorrow and mourning from those who've opposed him because they understand that his return equals judgment. And so you see that God's justice is sort of bookends this entire book. It's there at the beginning and it's there right at the very end as well. And it runs through it like a stream throughout the whole thing. And then verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. This is one of only two places where God the Father speaks directly in Revelation. The other one is uh, in 21, chapter 21. And that's the other place where he also identifies himself as the Alpha and the Omega. And if you're not familiar, those are the, the first letter and the last letter of the Greek alphabet. That's what that means. And so if you combine that with this threefold description of God's eternal nature, you know, who was and who is and who is to come, then these statements really are asserting God's sovereign control over all of history. And the original readers would have loved this idea of God being the Almighty, right? Because, you know, there was Caesar, and Caesar had this rule over this limited part of the world. That's where he was king. But their God was the almighty ruler of everything. And so once again, that gives hope to those that are under persecution. Now before uh, we talk about application, just a little side note. And that is that, you know, Revelation is this kind of prophetic, apocalyptic letter that's addressed to these seven particular churches that were located in first century Asia. All right? And if we're going to understand the message of Revelation properly, we have to start by trying to understand what it meant for those seven churches. Okay. Now, what, this, what I'm sort of getting into is that there, are, um, there have been authors and, and folks who teach that the seven churches were actually seven stages of church history. All right? or uh, different ages of the, that the church went through. And if that's the way you go with this, that it really pays al almost no attention to the actual audience that the letter was written to, which is always the first step in trying to understand scripture. You've got to understand what the context is. What was the author writing to? What was the situation in that town or church or whatever? Um, it would also understand prophecy as only prediction. And it would attempt to sort of force church history into some kind of an artificial timeline, right? And we don't want to do that. 
So I think we've, the important point here is that we really have to understand that these were seven actual churches and these, this was a letter written to each one of them and then build on that uh, going forward. So from an application standpoint, what can we uh, gather from this? Well, first of all, I think what it's saying is that salvation is not just what God saves us from, but also what God saves us for. See, although the cross is crucial to the gospel, the gospel includes a lot more than the cross. Note the verbs in verses 5 and 6 that we read, that Jesus loved us, that he freed us, and that he made us to be more than what we are. He demonstrated that love supremely on the cross. Which, of course, liberates us from the power of sin. But God's done more than just simply changing our relationship with sin. He changes our present and our future relationships to him and to each other. And wants us to actually become a community or a kingdom of priests what this says. And if, if you or, or someone you know is undergoing a particular trial, then Jesus' suffering brings comfort and reassurance because he understands what you're going through. And I think even more powerfully is he has no plans whatsoever to leave you that way. And that's, once again, where hope is present. You know, it's like we can't look here. We've got to look there. Journalist Rachel Rodriguez describes a moving ceremony in which 150 people were made United States citizens. A sense of hope and optimism permeates her interviews with individuals who took part in that ceremony and with other naturalized citizens. One says this, for me, American citizenship means freedom of expression and to live and work in a free country. To be an American is not just a great honor, but also an obligation to do more and reach higher. And another one remarked, in some ways we immigrants are the lucky ones. We see more clearly the opportunities that this great nation affords all its peoples. And so just as citizenship in a new nation grants privileges for those citizens, salvation brings us much more than just forgiveness of sins. It brings citizenship in God's kingdom. Jesus has not just saved us from judgment, he saved us for his mission. The message of the cross is that we who were once rebels can now serve the king. And that's good news. Second, the God who is the sovereign ruler of the universe is also personally present with his people. Now, the passage has kind of stressed this idea of God's eternal nature and sovereignty, but it also reminds us that God's always with us. We, we desperately need to know both of those things. 
you know, that, that first of all, that God is in control, but secondly, that God's with us. The Lord of the past, present, and future is the I am who I am. And sometimes the only way that we can even make sense of our individual circumstances is to see them in light of God's larger purposes. And it's much easier to remain faithful by joining in with God because we know what God's plans are. And it's revelation that offers us this full and complete picture of what that plan looks like. Well, there was something written uh, in, in 1563, and it's called the Heidelberg Catechism. And its words have brought comfort to millions of believers, reminding us why Jesus shed his blood. I, with body and soul, both in life and in death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has fully paid for all my sins and redeemed me from the power of the devil, and so preserves me that without the will of my Father in heaven not a hair can fall from my head. Yea, that all things must work together for my salvation. <clears throat> By his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready henceforth to live on to him. And then finally, this particular passage emphasizes this idea that Jesus will come again. See, Revelation, again, is not only about the return of Christ, but it is certainly about his return. And just as God intervened through the first coming of Jesus to offer salvation, he'll intervene again through the second coming to consummate what he began with that act. He's going to judge and destroy evil. He's going to resurrect his people. And he's going to transform creation so that he can live among his people forever. Oh, darn it. <laughs> supposed to tick. <laughs> yeah, well, you're supposed to hear the ticking. The point of this is that there's an awful lot of people who believe that... Um, the clock of time is just going to continue to run and that suddenly history is just going to come to an end. <clears throat> when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. 
Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. See, Christian living and honestly belief in this one God only makes sense on the assumption that he's going to come back and make everything to be right in the end. doesn't make sense any other way. The idea of not judging and turning the other cheek and all of those things that we are encouraged and, and actually commanded to do in Scripture doesn't make any sense if there's not some eventual and final judgment of everyone. So, what's our big idea for this week? Well, for these verses, the big idea is really, you know, John's greeting from Father, Spirit, and Son that results in this praise to God in anticipation of Christ's return. And it's a powerful reminder yet again of God's sovereign control over the entire universe. 